0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast. This is episode 40, and I'm your host, Des Latham. It's the morning of the 10th of June, 1900, and we are riding with General Christian de Vett, who is about to make Lord Kitchener's acquaintance, far from the capital, Pretoria, where Lord Roberts has bivouacked with his 16,000 troops, expecting the Boers to quit fighting. But they don't. In the Free State, General de has been creating his own brand of guerrilla warfare, which the British realise suddenly is likely to extend the conflict at least for a few weeks. Once again, they're wrong. The war is about to extend for two more years. And worse for the British, the new brand of highly mobile hit-and-run warfare has never been seen like this. Their response eventually is to design one of the most terrifying tools created by man – the concentration camp. Furthermore, the reason why this historic moment is so discernible from previous tactics of the same is the complexity of the Boer military structure and their complete dominance of the felt, the plains of South Africa. They are the Sioux or Apache warriors of South Africa, but with the latest weapons, heavily armed and mightily motivated, supplied surreptitiously and constantly moving. DeVet is the master of this landscape, but he's about to meet a man who eventually became one of the most hated in Southern Africa by Boer and even black South Africans. The man who was to perfect the idea of the concentration camp Lord Kitchener. It's the morning of June 10th, and it's winter in South Africa. Kitchener has around 15,000 men under his command, DeVet a few hundred. And the Boer commander is using the British weak link as his attack point. The railway line between the inland cities and the ports of Cape Town, Port Elizabeth, and East London. De Wet, however, is in a quandary. If he continues to attack the railway line, eventually Kitchener will catch him or surround his little force, particularly on the open plains around Helbron and Friedhofort Wach in the Free State. There are no large ranges of mountains to use as strategic points. They lie further southeast along the Drakensberg and the Lesotho border, so he must rely on his wits and false trails. He says in his book Three Years' War I gave orders that the few wagons which we had with us should proceed in the direction of Kruenstadt to the west of the line. Once out of sight, they were to turn sharply to the west and continue in that direction. This maneuver, I hoped, would serve to mislead the enemy who was on the lookout for us. But he was still the Devet who relished a fight, and instead of disappearing with his commander, he moved his men into positions on some nearby copies, or small hills, where only a few days before the British commander who was defeated by Devet, Captain Wyndham Knight, had placed his men. And Devet continues, The English with their well-known predilection for a flank attack at every possible opportunity, halted for an hour and shelled our positions with Liddite and other guns. This did not have the desired effect of inspiring terror in the burghers, who were under my command at Hoenengkopis. Hoenengkopis means honest copies, or little hills, which, considering what would happen to a handful of boers on these hills, is apt. I'll explain in a minute. Kitchener ordered his men to begin to move, but the Boers were watching closely as the cavalry made for a piece of rising ground to the north. General De Vett rode towards the area, out of sight from behind, hoping to advise his men before the attack on their position there began, but too late. The small arms fire began and the burghers lost their nerve and they began to flee, and De Wet now notes with disgust, This was exactly what I had feared would happen. Immediately afterwards the men in the centre position and therefore the nearest to me followed their comrade's example. This propensity to retreat without orders had already exasperated De and other Boer commanders who could not plan attacks properly as their men were constantly vacillating between fighting and making off at the smallest provocation. The British army would have shot their own men for desertion on the spot, but the Boers were more magnanimous. Still, Devet seethed. I watched them loosening their horses, which had been tethered behind a little hill. They were wild to get away from the guns of the English. Deciding then he had no chance, Devet ordered a general retreat south along the Renostere Field to avoid being seen by the British, and his small force galloped off towards the town of Kroenstadt. There's an amazing side story to this confrontation, and I return to the men of Huanenkoppi. Seven of these men were separated and captured by the British, then sent from the Free State to Cape Town and then onto the island of Ceylon, or modern-day Sri Lanka. Six of these men managed to escape by leaping from a ship anchored off the harbour in Sri Lanka and swam around five kilometres in the tropical waters to a Russian ship anchored nearby. From there, the six were transported to a Russian port that De Witt doesn't name, then overland to Germany and finally to Holland. Both countries were friends of the Boers at the time. From Holland, the six boarded a German freighter to German West Africa, or Namibia as we know it now. Then they rode overland through the intense Namib desert that lies between northern Namibia and South Africa, crossing through Busmanland into the Cape Colony, where they joined General Hermanus Maritz's commando, De Witt writes, What will the world say of these young burghers? Surely that more valiant and faithful men than they have never lived. These were the honest fighters, the men who were captured at the Hunenkopis. This war is full of these stories where men and women are global travellers long before the age of commercial aviation, where heroic tales combine ships, horses, trains and pure grit. Imagine the journey of the Magnificent Six, if you will, swimming a tropical sea, traveling to the Tsar's Russia, then to Germany, then a freighter to a desert country called German West Africa, and finally across one of the world's harshest desert terrains to return to battle in South Africa. And they were paid not a cent for their trouble and motivated by the value of their own honor. Lord Methuen was now trying to track down Devet and the Boer general was in for a shock, as he would be targeted shortly in more than one way, and I'll get to that in a while. So he rode off to Kronstadt with his commander, with Methuen behind, determined to put an end to what was presumed to be a futile crusade. De Wett had many targets, as all through the remainder of June, troops, guns, animals, wagons, and supplies were involved in an intricate pattern of movement north of Bloemfontein, the Free State capital. Methuen was trying to squeeze Devet into the western reaches of the country where the arid region afforded few opportunities to water animals and men. The Boer commander was driving Methuen to distraction, crisscrossing the railway line and hitting trains and ammunition dumps as he went. So, in mid-June, he arrived at Liuspreit, or Lion's Spring, north of the Ronosta River Bridge, which the English had recently repaired. De Wet gave orders that all the cattle belonging to the Boers close to the line be removed, but the Boer citizens ignored his request, possibly in order to make some extra money out of the sales of beef to the British. General Louis Boerter had made the same regulation in the countryside around Pretoria and Johannesburg, but both sets of generals found their people were not in agreement. De Wet believed that had the British been unable to purchase beef from the Boers, the war may have taken a different turn. But that's naive. The British were being supplied by the entire empire and that supply would never dry up, at least not in 1900. But de Witt was growing increasingly bitter about his fork too and he wrote, it was not their commander-in-chief. No, they had to thank the disobedience of our burghers for the fact that they were not all starved to death in Pretoria. Not quite true, but he was right about disobedience. The burghers reacted like cats being herded. De wet had reinforcements in the form of General Frunemann, who he asked to cross the railway line north of Renoster River Bridge, and that in the morning he should attack the English at Leuspreit Bridge from the east. De vet, in the meantime, would make his way with a krip gun to the west of the line, and he'd attack the British from that direction, a classic pincer movement. But his plan came to nothing. Frunemann ran into English troops at Leuerspreit Railway Bridge during the night as a train steamed up. And on board that train was the famous Lord Kitchener, hero of the Sudan, lion of the north, and De and Frunemann were unaware that he was so close by. This is where Frunemann and De men let them down. They were ordered to storm the train, but they refused. Had they done so, Lord Kitchener would no doubt have been captured, dead or alive. The vet writes bitterly, Had they done so, Lord Kitchener would have fallen into our hands. Instead, Kitchener managed to leap onto a horse in the dead of night and make his escape, and the train also headed off into the night, so both Kitchener and the supplies on board were safe. But there was some good news for the Boers. General Frunemann managed to overpower the garrison at the railway bridge and took 58 prisoners. He then set fire to the bridge, which was a wooden structure having been built to replace another similar one which had been blown up with gunpowder. They also captured 300 black troops and logistic support soldiers. The Boers then toyed with the idea of shooting the men, but de writes, They protested that they had no arms and had only been employed to work on the railway line. This absence of rifles was their saving. Possibly they had really been in possession of arms and had thrown them away under cover of darkness, but the burghers could not know this and therefore acted upon the principle that it is better to let ten culprits escape than to condemn an innocent man to death. The British and Boers were indulging in one-upmanship in terms of what was perceived to be civilized action in the midst of a war. And this was another occasion where de Witt was reinforcing his people's ethics. But Devet also had a big problem. He didn't know where General Frunemann was. The attack had failed, so he ordered the Krupp gun crew to fire into Liu Spreit's siding. The burgers then advanced without their reinforcements, but at the siding they found nothing. And later that afternoon, General Frunemann then rode up. Both generals had managed to take 1,200 prisoners of war and he'd sent these to the president's camp east of Helbron. Then he rode off with his men to Ilanslachte, which had already seen a major clash earlier in the Boer War. Here he was determined to fight the English again, lying in wait to open fire on the advancing soldiers. The English marched straight towards his men. Their scouts had failed to spot the Boers hiding in the hills. Suddenly, one of the Boer men lost his cool and opened fire at around 500 metres away instead of letting the British advance to point-blank range. This saved hundreds of British lives as they hit the deck while the others wheeled around and galloped back over a kilometre away. De Wet was beside himself. The poor discipline of the Boer troop had failed him again. You have to feel sorry for this exemplary officer, fighting for what he believed in, only to be disappointed by a pretty basic military indiscipline. One wonders what would have happened in this conflict if a highly disciplined group using these vastly accurate weapons what they would have achieved. Now, de and his men were under attack by the British artillery who were highly trained and highly disciplined. These guns opened at a heavy fire on the ridges and a second party of English trying to outflank the Boers, This led to Devet retreating. As the winter sun sank and dusk drew in, De Witt and his commander of around a 1,000 men cantered back to their camp near Sleutkraal and remained in hiding there until the following day. Then Bardekral, the kraal 30 kilometers northeast of Kronstadt and there he used this as his HQ until the evening of the 19th of June. He divided his men into three parties to attack the railway line once more. Commandant J.H. Ulfi was sent to Hoeningspraat Station again. General Frunemann to America Siding and Devet made his way to Surfontaine Siding, but these three attacks failed largely as the English were ready, and the commandant Ulfeldt attacked Hoensbroeck too late in the day. Still, these rumblings south of where Lord Roberts watched in Pretoria began to worry the British. They had captured the capital weeks before on June the 5th and expected the Boer generals to admit defeat, but they hadn't. In fact, Roberts and his men had already had to fight a short, sharp battle close to Pretoria called the Battle of Diamond Hill, which I'll talk to you about next week. Lord Kitchener was involved in the coming battle. It had taken place a few days after the British seized Pretoria and well before he was almost captured far south by de Wet and his commander in the Free State. That train incident. Roberts had issued an edict that the Boers had 14 days to hand over their weapons, but the Boers were not willing to do so en masse. For this, you can blame both Kitchener and Roberts. They had believed that might was right, that the Boers deserved to be taught a lesson, and in particular, General Christian de Wet, who was now virtually world famous. French and German journalists thought of him as a kind of military genius, and indeed, if you assess how clearly he saw how to act under duress, there was a strict genius about him. Forget the propaganda on both sides. When war starts, those who are able to manage themselves most accurately and motivate their men most significantly and worry the enemy most emphatically are victors, at least in short bursts. So Roberts, the diminutive British general, thought the vet needed to be taught a lesson, that the British really meant business. One moment he's dispatching his men to Boer homesteads, saying, hands up, all is fine, we are civilized. Then the next he's ordering the general destruction of Boer farmhouses and that was his plan with regard to De Wett, bring the war to his front door. After the Battle of Rudeval, which I described last week, Roberts was furious. How dare these uncivilized Boers ignore the fact that the war was over? They'd lost. So he gathered his officers around him on June the 15th, and after discussing the future strategy, gave the infamous Proclamation 5 on the next day, June the 16th. That day is now commemorated as Soweto Day, where youths, black youths in Soweto, rose up in 1976 against apartheid. Isn't it ironic that this day was also written into South Africa's historical calendar as the day Lord Roberts ordered that any Boer who continue fighting should have his farm reduced to ashes? Roberts is quoted as saying, A few examples only will be necessary, and let us begin with De Witt's farm. And thus, on June the 16th, De Witt's farm, called Rudeput, was reduced to ashes. By the time it was safe enough for Christian De Witt to return to his own property, the embers had died down, but even from a distance, he was shattered by what he saw. It had taken this man his lifetime to build up this farm, and the British turned it into a shell in less than a minute. The British had turned an enemy into an implacable enemy. Devet's family were also adrift in this madness. His three eldest sons were on commando with him. His wife, Cornelia, and nine other children had been roaming the countryside for months, taking refuge where they could. DeVette rode up to the ashes of his farmhouse, then realized that the British had actually used dynamite to destroy it, wiping away a generation of development in a heartbeat. He dismounted, knelt at the grave of his infant daughter, and prayed. Then he climbed back on his horse, rode back to his companions, who described him as face drawn and pale, and said, Let's go. There's work to be done. The blasting and burning of Devets' farm is now regarded as one of the core moments of this war in June 1900. At first, Roberts was sure he was successful because the Boers were shaken by this act and many actually surrendered. However, the attack on the farm Rudabut was also a rallying call for those who were more fundamentalist. So the British were now targeting generals. Therefore, nothing was safe. Their own homes were in danger, so many Boers gave up. Between March and July of 1900, around 14,000 Boers, or almost a quarter of the original 60,000 Boer conscripts in the two republics, abandoned the struggle. Most of these were wealthy middle-class burghers and senior government officials, the people who had the most to lose. Yet, the Rudiput farm burning was ultimately counterproductive. It was a double-edged symbol, as Dutch historian Martin Bossenburg writes. This incident caused many others to increase their resolve and fight on defiant to the end. In a nutshell, De Wet's example of sacrifice made his people more resolute than less. Christian was going to fight on to the bitter end. This led to two types of Boer, which in the coming years, and even to this century now, the types are still used as an insult or badge of honor. The one group were called the Hens or Hands Uppers, those who surrendered. The other group was called the Bitter Enders, or Bitter Enders, those who fought apparently for the noble purpose of their cause. Roberts' draconian measure had caused the Boers a great deal of trouble. It also caused fractiousness, where the choice was between returning to their peaceful, rustic way of life as loyal subjects of the British, or to continue the fight and be hunted down as rebels. There was now a war inside every Boer family. It moved from the battlefield into the kitchen and the lounge, into the ox wagon, President Stain of the Free State issued his own proclamation, saying he was indeed the proper leader of the country, not Lord Roberts. Far away in the eastern Transvaal town of Machadodorp on the edge of the Escarpment, heading towards Portuguese East Africa, Transvaal President Paul Kruger looked on. He responded with his own series of telegrams and edicts, and on June 20th, for example, addressed himself directly to those who were still undecided. Brothers! Brothers, I implore you not to give up hope. Be steadfast and fight in the name of the Lord. Look into your hearts. If you are cowardly and flee, it is because you have ceased to believe in a God in heaven and have forsaken the Almighty. Kruger was a biblical man from another age, but he also continued to inspire the bitter Enders. The Transvaal president then made it clear what was coming for both the British and the Boers who hands upped. On June the 24th, Kruger ordered these hands-uppers to have their property confiscated. We'll call a halt now to the Battle of the Wits, the Hearts and Minds. And I'll pick up the Battle of Diamond Hill next week and other incidents around Pretoria. So thanks for listening, and to those who are sending me notes and advice, please continue. Don't forget to take a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com, and if you want to send me a message, you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until then, goodbye. My sorry, my rest, al ek ooit weer kan sê, o my skade het weer gekry. En zonder gedal langs de mooie revue's te het sy voor oorlogsdage blij. O breng my terug naar die oude daar waar my sorry...